Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Before we begin today's episode, I have a big thanks to give to Elizabeth for giving me a little clarification on the 44-gallon drum of sperm at the wedding last week. This would be sperm oil from Sperm Whales, which is used in oil lamps at the time of that marriage, at least. The thing about sperm oil, it burns bright. There's no odor. It's a big deal to get that much light-burning fuel. Elizabeth, I really appreciate that clarification. I feel so much better about that whole situation. It has bugged me for a long time. You rock. Also, I want to give a big shout out to Mark S. Your encouragement and support means the world. Thank you for listening and sharing the love and some excellent information that will be coming in future stories. You rock. And thanks to all y'all too for coming back to Done and Done this week. Continuing through our New York state of crime season, we got just a little while longer in the Gilded Age, investigators. Two weeks ago, we introduced Alva Vanderbilt. We left her hosting the ball where she is going to smash into high society in 1883. But there's a whole arc about Alva from that point onward. There is a rise, there is a brutal fall, and another kind of rise, a resurrection, if you will. Alva Vanderbilt, sassy Southern girl, making it happen her own way. Let's investigate. The term Gilded Age is actually coined by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner in 1873 within the book titled The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. The gilded adjective isn't really necessarily complimentary, though. This is glitter on the surface, but when you scratch the surface, the gilded is just paint. Underneath all that shiny, it's corrupt. There's a class of the super rich, and they are spending in the most conspicuous of ways. The large amount of spending is done initially by the robber barons. This is the American industrial age, and there are a number of families making a lot of cash, like so much cash. The children and grandchildren of the robber barons, though, will have a delightful time spending that cash in their pursuit of creating a high society that is modeled from European aristocracy. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of climbing. There's a lot of spending and showing off, too. And remember, the Knickerbockers didn't appreciate all that showiness so much. But this is not the case for the rich folks in the Gilded Age. And, well, the Vanderbilts are all slung up in that spending. Our man Dominic will write for Vanity Fair in January 1995 a piece called The Vanderbilt Century. I think this is a good way to get into the story, Dunn writes. According to the essay written by 13-year-old Charles Scribner IV, who describes himself as the great-great-great-great-grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt, the patriarch received the title Commodore from his rivals on the docks of Staten Island for his early toughness and use of profanity. The name stuck. The Commodore was many things, but he was not beloved. 
When cheated in business by some former associates, he is said to have uttered the phrase that has become the most associated with him over the years. I won't sue you, for law is too slow. I will ruin you. He then set about doing just that. Furthermore, he put his first wife, Sophia, the mother of his children, into a mental institution for a short time when she was disinclined to leave her home on Staten Island and move into grander quarters on Washington Square in Manhattan. Though the family has long been defined as the epicenter of American society, the entrance of the Vanderbilts into that rarefied world was not immediate. The acquisition of the fortune consumed the lives of both Commodore Vanderbilt and his principal heir, William Henry Vanderbilt. Socially, the Astors, whose fortune began with fur trading, had arrived ahead of the Vanderbilts, considered them socially inconsequential, and ignored the Parvenus. Being snubbed by Mrs. Astor was of no importance whatever to the early Vanderbilts or their wives. Social prominence came later, when they were capitulated into society by the fierce social ambitions of the wife of the Commodore's grandson, William Kassam Vanderbilt, the former Alva Smith of Alabama. Alva Vanderbilt's blindingly splendid costume ball in 1883 was an occasion of spectacular extravagance, such as had never been seen before in this country and has rarely been equaled since. So great was the anticipation of the Vanderbilt Ball that when Mrs. Astor heard that her daughter was not going to be invited, she was forced to call on Mrs. Vanderbilt to secure an invitation for her. From the evening of that ball onward, the Vanderbilts were firmly established. Oh my. Thanks, Dominic. Let's put Alva in the center of all this. Remember, her 1883 year lands Alva into high society, and there's no ignoring her or her family anymore. And the thing you need to know about Alva is even from a young age, she is very centered on the premise that men have the power. Alva sees how women, well, they have to wield the power they do get in different ways, and for sure, Alva's pretty good at it. Besides her big grand ball in 1883, there is something else that happened with Alva in 1883 that I want y'all to know about. Like crashing into society wasn't a big enough deal with her ball, Alva is going to stage another coup in 1883. Big year. This year, Alva will become one of the founders of the Metropolitan Opera House. Currently today, the Metropolitan Opera. This is Alva, y'all. So back in the day, high society folks went to the opera every single week in the 1880s. And, well, the Knickerbocker Society is not having any of that robber baron trash in the private boxes at the Academy of Music. You can get a seat, maybe, but you're going to get a seat on the floor. And Alva doesn't want to be on the floor with the regular people. The Gilded Age rich folks robber baron families are absolutely banned from buying a box at the Academy of Music. This is a rule set down from the board of directors. So no problem for Alva. She and her friends will just make their own opera, and that's what they do. What is called the Old Met will live on the block between West 39th Street and West 40th Street and Broadway. 
The Metropolitan Opera House opens October 22, 1883 with a performance of Faust. Within three years, y'all, the Academy of Music is out of the opera business and is now showing vaudeville on its former famous stage. The Old Met Building is demolished in 1967, and the Metropolitan Opera at that point relocated to Lincoln Center. Back to Alva. No messing around with her. So remember Alva and William, her husband William Willie K. Vanderbilt, married in 1875. In 1875, Alva loves that Willie is handsome and charming and, well, really rich too. And Willie isn't anywhere near as rich as he's going to be. Dominic Dunn from the Vanderbilt Century will continue writing about the wealth of the family. Cornelius Vanderbilt's fortune at the time of his death was said to exceed $100 million. Remember, Cornelius dies in 1877. Obviously a believer in the traditional system of primogeniture, preserving a fortune through the generations by leaving everything to the oldest son, a practice not followed by his heirs, the Commodore left $90 million to his eldest son, William Henry Vanderbilt, for whom he had once considered to be something of a disappointment. William Henry outlived his father by nine years. William Henry does die in 1885. But in that time, he managed to turn the $90 million into $200 million, the equivalent in today's currency of more than $3.3 billion. The Vanderbilts were now not only the richest family in America, but also as rich as some monarchies. Then came the spending. They spent and spent and spent. The largest houses ever built in America were built by the Vanderbilts. Finishing up with one last quote here. They were so competitive, all those Vanderbilts. William H. left four boys and four girls, and they all big houses. They were all trying each other. If you look at the books, you'll see they were visiting each other and wanted to see what the other one had. And here's Alva, right? In the thick of it. So let's see. By 1885, Alva and Willie have three kids. She is firmly planted in society and stuck in a loveless marriage. How do you soothe your soul? You already have an opera and a New York City home, and more Charles Worth gowns you can throw a stick at, but it is the Gilded Age, and Alva's going to buy more things and build some houses too. Let's start with the buying things part. See, Alva is going to buy herself a yacht. Well, she's going to commission a yacht to be built. The yacht's name is Alva. <laughs> the 285-foot-long vessel commissioned in 1886 would be the largest private yacht in the world. Because Alva has to beat the competition, y'all. J.P. Morgan's yacht is a paltry 165 feet. Mrs. Astor's yacht is 233 feet. And even William Henry Vanderbilt, Alva's father-in-law, whose fortune is funding her boat, is only 270 feet. Alva has to beat them all. And her yacht... (laughs) the Alva, is awfully seaworthy. The yacht will tour all over Europe as well as the Caribbean. So Alva's now got a pretty nice boat, so she might as well build a home too. Alva's going to call this a summer cottage, but don't be fooled, investigators. 
(laughs) This new home will be built for Alva in Newport, Rhode Island. She will commission Richard Morris Hunt, legendary architect, to design her little seaside cottage at the beach. See, Richard Morris Hunt has designed the Vanderbilt New York City home on Fifth Avenue, the location of the Grand 1883 Ball. So Alva's like, yeah, let's see what Richard Morris Hunt can do with a summer cottage. Her home is going to be built conveniently right next door to Beechwood, the summer cottage of her bested former rival, Mrs. Caroline Astor. Now, Caroline has been ruling Newport since 1880. That's when she bought her home, Beechwood. Richard Morris Hunt also did extensive renovations for Mrs. Astor within the 1880s. Oh, Alva, you're a sassy girl. So let's dip a little bit into Newport here. Within Newport, Rhode Island, the new Southern American aristocracy is going to begin building with some real ambition. If you live in the South, you know the summer heat in the South is brutal. And wealthy plantation owners from the South have the money to do it. They think, yay, let's go build some seaside cottages in an area that's not quite as hot as it is here. Their Yankee American counterparts are like, well, that's probably a good idea. I mean, don't forget, y'all, there's a great mingling of new money in between the North and the South. Their fortunes are feeding each other, however ill-gained those fortunes are on either side of the Mason-Dixon line. Now, Alva has a home in New York City and an opera too, but her seaside cottage will begin construction in 1889 and welcome to Marble House. Construction is completed in 1892. Keep in mind, Marble House is funded with the money of William Henry Vanderbilt, who again passed away in 1885, and now his kids are just spending. Marble House, holy cats. Located at 596 Bellevue Avenue was Alva's pet project, and she will fashion it after some of the grand palaces in Europe. Kind of nice. This is Alva's 39th birthday present, Marble House is, from her husband, Willie. Alva will own the home outright as her gift. But Marble House sounds like, what kind of seaside cottage is that? It's not just a name, y'all. The mansion was built from half a million cubic feet of marble. Let's process that. Half a million feet of cubic marble. It is a legitimate marble house. Marble house is approximately (laughs) 140,000 square feet. It has 50 rooms and requires 36 full-time servants. Marble House is one of the first homes that is going to turn Newport from a summer cottage retreat for the rich to the summer retreat of opulent palace cottages, if you can call them that, that Newport is going to become through the Gilded Age. A few other fun facts here. There's another brother of Willie's. His name is Frederick William. He begins building in 1892 his estate to compete because all the Vanderbilts are always competing with each other. This estate will be called Rough Point. And Rough Point is honestly at the best part of Bellevue Avenue. It's down at the bottom of the street. This home in the early 1920s will become the home of James B. Duke, 
Doris Duke's father and will eventually be owned by Doris Duke as well. Frederick William is not the only Vanderbilt brother that is competing, though. The same year, construction begins for a home. Construction begins on another home for another of Willie's brothers. This one, Cornelius Jr. wants to best uh, the brothers game in Newport. Cornelius Jr. will begin his summer cottage, which is called the Breakers. The Breakers, which is finished in 1895, sits on 13 acres of oceanfront property. Richard Morris Hunt designs the Breakers as well. This summer cottage has a total of 65,000 square feet, 70 rooms, 15 family bedrooms, and 40 bedrooms for the staff. The super big deal about the Breakers when it was built, though, the home has electric light and gas lamps. It's a big, big deal. Just throwing out a few fun spider webs there because literally everything connects, not only in Newport, because all of these folks are building in Long Island, New York, too. They're going to be building in Palm Beach soon enough. What a fun ride we are headed into in Done and Done. But now in 1894, Let's pause with Alva riding on a high note here. Fancy yacht, new marble house, queen of her high society world. This sassy southern girl has risen to the pinnacle. When we return, it is Alva's brutal fall and resurrection, but not without doing some super dirty manipulative moves to get her there. We will continue our investigation right after a word from our sponsors. So what happens, right? Let's continue our investigation, beginning with the early months of 1895. See, Alva and Willie in 1895 have been married like 20 years now, and no one is happy. No one's happy at all. The custom of the time does dictate that powerful and wealthy men, for the most part, have license to fool around as they please, and their wives are not supposed to discuss it for certain Next, the wives are just supposed to kind of endure it. You may have some shady ladies stepping out, but when it is done, it is not publicized quite yet in the Knickerbocker age. We're just barely in the 1890s, right? All of this is going to change next week when we move along to the 20th century, but for now, unhappy marriages are just that. In high society, you may... In the most extreme of cases, separate from your spouse. But divorce just doesn't happen. Until 1895, when in March of that year, Alva will file for divorce from Willie. 20 years, y'all. Solid overthrow of society. But now Alva is done with this marriage. And honestly, Willie's just made her angry. It's one thing to fool around. Because when men fool around, the expectation and understanding is they stay quiet about it. Keep it secret, keep it safe. I mean, sure, let your fellas at the union club know, but it doesn't get around. And, well, Willie doesn't keep it quiet or, in fact, safe. He flaunts it a lot. There has been a much-talked-about affair of his in Paris Remember, Willie and Alva do not spend a lot of time together, but when they do spend time together, it is around friends and other people. But this affair that Willie has isn't 
too cool from Alva's side of things. In the press, Willie is made out to be a philanderer, and Alva's going to come out pretty darn well from her side of the divorce. Alva's going to get custody of her three kids. She will own Marble House outright. Alva will keep her Fifth Avenue home as well and land with about $10 million in 1890s dollars. Today, that's about $312 million. So Alva wins the day. Or does she? It's complicated. It's really complicated. So see Alva, as she's contemplating divorce, her friends are like, honey, don't do it. You're going to get shunned by society. Nobody gets divorced. Why are you like this? But Alva, she doesn't believe that she's going to get knocked off her pedestal. After a decade and a half rising, I have an opera. I have a, I have a marble house. Like, who's going to stop me? Now, Alva may also have another motivation that is a little, little more hidden, really, except to Alva and those who know her. Because remember, Alva and Willie have friends and parties. And if you heard about my big yacht called Alva, hmm. one of Willie's BFFs is this guy named Oliver H.P. Belmont. And Willie and Oliver have been friends for a while. They both like ladies and horses and boats, and it's a stellar friendship. Oliver is old money, honey, or international old money, at least. Oliver is heir to a family of French bankers who have worked for centuries as representatives of a family that you may have heard of, the Rothschilds. So Oliver, in his impetuous youth, started as kind of a wild guy. He's born in 1858 in New York City. Oliver's father is the man who creates the Belmont Stakes, like money and horses. And, oh gosh, Oliver's a playboy and a womanizer from an early age. Those are the things he likes to do. It's not go to school. Uh, Oliver's going to graduate a year late and at the bottom of his class from the Naval Academy. His interests are clearly elsewhere. But by the age of 23 or so, Oliver is in love with a lovely young socialite from the Newport set. Her name is Sarah Whiting. Oliver wants to get married. And Oliver's parents say, absolutely not. Oliver's parents decide to send him to Germany to learn the banking industry from his Rothschild relatives. It is here in Germany that Oliver will lapse into a world of brothels and absinthe. To where even his mama breaks down and is like, come on back and just marry Sarah then. 1882 is the year of the nuptials. Sarah and Oliver honeymoon in Paris. And it is here that Oliver's mother and his sisters join the honeymoon fun with the newlyweds. You thinking about how badly that goes in your brain now? It does go really badly. There are more brothels. There's more absinthe. The marriage is done practically by the end of the honeymoon, but not without Oliver fathering a child who Oliver will then disown from his fortune in 1883. Oliver's first marriage and divorce is happening the same year as Alva's big 1883 ball. Now that Oliver's divorced, though, it leaves him some free time and some of this free time he's going to spend on holiday with Alva and Willie especially in the late 1880s on Alva's fancy yacht, the Alva. Oliver is aboard for a number of voyages, and, well, 
Sparks are flying between Oliver and Alva, y'all. A lot of sparks. So many sparks that in 1894, the year before Alva files for divorce, Oliver Belmont is going to begin to build his summer cottage in Newport right next door on the other side to Alva's marble house. Oliver's home is called Belcourt, literally next door to Alva. This is 1894. Alva has not filed for divorce yet. It's not going to happen until the following year. Whoa. The home that Oliver builds is a 60-room mansion designed by who else? Richard Morris Hunt. And this home actually starts out a little weird. There's one bedroom and one bathroom for a human, for Oliver, presumably. But there are accommodations for 33 full-time staff, as well as 30 stalls for horses. Like the entire ground floor of the home is carriage storage and stables for three dozen horses. Not sure what Oliver was playing at when he was building this, but his day's coming. Because Alva's going to file for divorce in the spring of 1895, and she's going to get all the goodies that she gets in the divorce. But her friends were right. She's shut out of society. Done and done. Shunned. And no one's talking to Alva or inviting her to anything. And Alva's not really down with that. But hey, hey, the summer season is coming up. And, well, Alva thinks she has some advantages in her court to get back on the uh, top of the high society game. Summer season is coming, and Alva's not going to let that go to waste. This is not an episode of the Gilmore Girls, that's for sure. See, remember Alva has a daughter, Consuelo. Consuelo, named after Alva's best friend, Consuelo is Naga, also lives in Newport. Consuelo, luckily, Alva's daughter, is turning 18 in 1895, and Sweet baby, Consuelo has just had this, like, gilded cage childhood. Consuelo's given no freedom or ability to make her own choices. Everything about her childhood is meticulously planned and overseen by her social climbing and perhaps overbearing mother, Alva. Now, from birth, Consuelo is bred for her ultimate purpose, which is snagging a royal or a titled husband. And Alva's not messing around. Consuelo is educated in European languages, arts, and culture. The training she receives on etiquette and manners is rigorous. It is considered an absolute necessity for a young lady to sit and stand up straight, and Consuelo was forced to wear a metal brace that went down around her spine and strapped around her waist, went over her shoulders, and then had another strap that went around her forehead. Good Lord, right? It sounds terrible. This was meant to ensure Consuelo's ladylike, aristocratic posture and hopefully, somehow, elongate her elegant neck. Poor Consuelo. She has a strict course of daily lessons and a schedule that is maintained down to the minute. A super strict upbringing. Consuelo, bless her heart, is whipped with a riding crop for minor infractions. Between her brothers being sent away to school and her overly protective cloistering, Consuelo lives a lonely and secluded life, although it is one spent in splendor and luxury. 
Again, during this time, everyone's unfaithful, but you just stay married, but not Alva. She does the dirty divorce. She's out. What can get her back into society? Alva has a plan to regain and even improve her social standing, and this plan relies completely on marrying her daughter Consuelo to a titled aristocratic family. We got the money. You got the title. Let's make lots of marriages. Oh, Alva. So Alva's going to arrange for that summer season in Newport. Alva is going to arrange for John Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough. His nickname is Sonny. She gets the Duke, the ninth Duke, whoa, to come to her summer party. Alva's entire purpose of arranging this visit with Sonny coming to visit is the marriage between Sonny and Consuelo. But naturally, all of Newport wants to meet a real-life Duke of England. So even before Consuelo weds the ninth Duke of Marlborough, Alva had already won back her place in society. But once Consuelo marries the Duke and becomes a duchess, Alva's place in society is fully cemented. Alva has accomplished her life goal and is the envy of every mother trying to marry off their daughters to European aristocracy. Now, the thing you need to know is Consuelo does not want to marry the Duke. Consuelo is secretly engaged to someone else. She had fallen, Consuelo had fallen, in love with Winthrop Rutherford. And Winthrop Rutherford had proposed, and she said yes. Now, Winthrop Rutherford is from a wealthy old money family. He's part of Ward McAllister's 400. Winthrop is a direct descendant of Lewis Morris, who is one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Winthrop is also a direct descendant of the last Dutch director of New Amsterdam, which becomes New York. He's a direct descendant of John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts. And Winthrop is also the boy next door to Consuelo, and she is in love. You'd think this level of social cachet would be enough for Alva, but it is not. Alva is not going to settle for anything less than a prestigious title for her daughter, And the very lowest title that Alva will accept is that of Duchess. Alva straight up forbids the marriage between Consuelo and Winthrop, forces Consuelo to travel to Europe in order to separate Consuelo from her love. Alva is not about to let her daughter throw away her chance of marrying John Spencer Churchill to become a Duchess, right? Alva is going to go to some pretty extreme measures to accomplish this, including locking Consuelo in her room and having a footman stand guard outside of Consuelo's door so she could not leave. All of Consuelo's incoming and outgoing mail is read to ensure that she's not writing Rutherford or receiving letters from him. When Consuelo naturally protests and complains, her mom says that she'd just shoot Rutherford if they managed to elope. So you can get married, but then you'll have a dead husband, kid. How does that feel? Alva's final manipulation, it's pretty, uh, pretty diabolical, was faking a heart attack and blaming it on Consuelo's disobedience. I'm having a heart attack. Do you want to be the death of your mother? And Consuelo does not want to be the death of her mother. 
She'll give in to Alva's threats and control tactics and relent. Even on the morning of the wedding, Consuelo is not left alone for one second because Alva fears that Consuelo will still take the opportunity to run away. Consuelo Vanderbilt marries John Spencer Churchill, 9th Duke of Marlborough, New York City, November 6, 1895. Consuelo would later write that she was grateful for such a large veil because her face and eyes were swollen from having spent the entire morning crying. See, the thing you need to know, Consuelo's not the only one in love with someone else. Sonny, her new groom, is also in love at the time of the marriage. Sonny's in love and wanted to marry Muriel Wilson. He was a beautiful and accomplished member of British high society. Sonny tells Consuelo on the night of their wedding that he had to give up the woman he loved to marry Consuelo in order to save Blenheim Palace, his ancestral home. Blenheim Palace is built in between 1705 and 1722. It is named from the 1704 Battle of Blenheim, originally meant as a gift to John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, in appreciation for his military victories in the War of Spanish Secession. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes down at Blenheim Palace, both before the Vanderbilt money and after, but different story for a different day. This story is about Alva, who has achieved her dream. Her daughter has married a duke, and Alva is back in a position of power in society. This marriage will come with a $5 million dowry for Consuelo's sweet broken heart, and a lot of flack in the press about being a phony romance because, well, it is. But Alva, she's landed. She's made it back again. And her company is now sought after more than it ever was because her daughter is a duchess and a titled aristocrat. Queen Victoria herself will send a congratulatory telegram. Alva is Queen B again. Despite their marital unhappiness, Consuelo and the Duke do have two sons. Consuelo is a fascinating story that we're going to come back to, but in another season. Again, we're here for Alva today. Because remember, this is summer season, Newport, 1895, when all of this goes down. The wedding happens in November of 1895 at St. Thomas Episcopal Church on Fifth Avenue. There's the dowry and scandal and unhappiness for the time being on that side, but Alva, she's doing okay. Because it is in January 1896, just two months after her daughter's wedding, that Alva will remarry to, you guessed it, Oliver H.P. Belmont. The wedding happens January 11th, 1896, and, well, at least she didn't try to do it in summer season. Alva will promptly move her boxes to the left and into Belmont, and it is here that Alva kind of quits high society. Like, there's Vanderbilt money, and then there's Belmont Rothschild money, and Oliver and Alva live quite a life. What to do now? Let's spend more money. The first thing Alva's going to do is renovate Belcourt. I mean, it's one bedroom for humans, 30 bedrooms for horses, so that changes. In 1897, Alva and Oliver will begin building their home in Long Island called Brookholt. In 1899, two years later, they are going to begin building a new mansion on Madison and 51st Street in Manhattan. 
This home in Manhattan is not finished by the time of Oliver's death in 1908. Oliver will pass away at the Long Island Brookholt home, which after his death for a little while is turned into a home for female farmers. Wait for it. It's an amazing story. Because Alva is going to get the fever. She's always known that men hold the power. And Alva wants some power for herself. So after Oliver's death beginning in 1908, Alva's going to throw herself into the suffragist movement. She'll hear a lecture by Ida Husted Harper. And Alva's done with high society. Turns her back on all of it for real and will dedicate the next decade and a half of her life to promoting suffragette causes. And wow, does she. In 1909, she'll open Marble House for a suffrage symposium. She's the headlining speaker, naturally. In this same year, Alva will create the Political Equality League, established to get votes for politicians who support women's suffrage. In 1912, she will lead the Political Equality Division of the Women's Vote Parade in New York City. Holy cats, in 1916, Alva and Alice Paul will establish the National Women's Party and organized picketing in front of the White House. Alva will remain president of the National Women's Party until her death and is even such a benefactress that Alva purchases their headquarters for the National Women's Party in Washington, D.C., which is now the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument. Alva dedicates a solid decade plus of her time and money to support women's rights and the right to vote. Kind of amazing. Once the 19th Amendment is passed, Alva, maybe looking for a little rest, will retire to France to be closer to her daughter Consuelo. This happens in 1923. Alva's going to undertake a few building projects here as well for about the next decade. In 1932, Alva suffers a stroke and will pass away the beginning of 1933, January 26, in Paris, of bronchial and heart ailments. Alva is 80 years old at the time of her death. Her funeral is held in New York City at St. Thomas Episcopal Church, where Consuelo got married all those years ago. Alva will have female pallbearers carrying her casket. The church is filled with a large group of mourners, collected from her suffragette sisters. I mean, Alva Erskine Smith Vanderbilt Belmont, what a life you had. Made your way to the top of society, to be back on the bottom, to get back on top, to let it all go, to promote the causes of not only American women, but fighting for votes for women in the United Kingdom as well. Sassy Southern girls, y'all, maybe just stay out of their way. We do get the job done. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Done and Done. We're going to be back next week, finally, moving into the 20th century. We're leaving the 1890s behind and getting into the true crime case that shocked New York City in its very first decade of the 20th century. If you need a few more goodies to listen to in the meantime, please search for and subscribe for free to my very newest podcast, y'all. Daily episodes launch today. It is called Love Letters 2. And Love Letters 2 is 10 minutes of a daily love letter to something wonderful and unexpected in history. I hope you check it out if you have a few free moments this week. 
Again, enormous thanks and gratitude to all y'all. Thank you for your love, your kind feedback, telling your friends about Done and Done too. Simply the best all of you are. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.